Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and today I'm at the Words and the Waves Writers Festival in the Surf Club Saving Club at Umina. And so there's a little bit of atmospheric noise, but I think that's what makes it so great. And sitting here with me with this beautiful view in front of us is Emily McGuire. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. It's good to be back at a festival with real life people. Isn't it? <laughs> Now, Emily, you are author of six novels, including Stella Prize and Miles Franklin Award shortlisted, An Isolated Incident, and three non-fiction books. Your articles on essays and sex, feminism, culture and literature have been published widely. It sounds very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it sounds that way to me too. It's, it sort of doesn't, you said that's over 15 years of your life. It's just work. But when you hear it all at once, it does sound pretty great. I like it. Oh, yeah, and you should because I was looking at all your books and they're just remarkable. They really are. Now, your session a little bit later today is going to be about love, family and other catastrophes. Can you tell me what you think or what you expect to come out of this discussion today? Yeah, I mean, it kind of covers everything <laughs> you hope that the love and the families go a bit together as much as either of those things and catastrophes are going to go together too yes. right? but certainly my my novel love objects is about uh, a family who who do all love each other but that doesn't stop there being some pretty significant conflict in there um and i know also on the panel will be nadi simpson with her beautiful book song of the crocodile which is also sort of an intergenerational family saga as well so i think we will get into a lot of that stuff how 
our, you know, wounds, but also the positive things that you get from your parents and your grandparents and how they, they keep flowing through to the next generation. Mm. What I find interesting about families, I mean, they are complex and you, you're saying there is love, but each generation, they can be so different from the last. So it's about keeping those connections, respecting, you know, the people that came before you, but still being able to forge that identity for yourself, I think. Yeah, and being able to maybe take what is great, like that there are, for most of us, eventually we realise there is stuff to learn from your parents and grandparents, <laughs> but you do kind of have to, I think most people have to go through a time of really separating from that, forming your own identity, like you said, and also discarding some of the old stuff, because yes. we know that there's stuff from the past that we all do want to actually shake off and get rid of, and to be able to do that while also, you know valuing the, the good things that I learned and the wisdom that comes mm. through is, is a big deal. I think that's true and accepting you know accepting the past generations that sometimes they're just going to have their views and we haven't lived their life mm. so I think that's interesting. Now I saw your book um, out in the festival as well and I'm really interested in talking about this. This is what a feminist looks like. Can you tell me about this book? Yeah so this is a non-fiction book mm-hmm. um, and it is, uh, it sort of taps into what we were just saying actually, because it is a kind of a popular history of the women's rights movement in Australia. So it goes from colonisation through to roughly the present in terms of what have been the big breakthroughs in women's rights and how have we got there. And um, it covers a lot of ground, obviously, um, but one of the big themes of that for me reading it too was. You know exactly what we've been talking about. How can we look at what, for example, the suffragists, the women who fought to get the vote um, in this country for women to really be able to respect and admire and celebrate their achievements while also acknowledging that they had some major blind spots around class and race um, in particular, uh, some kind of really odd moralising views looked at in these ways and that, you know, it is part of, I guess, being a mature nation as well as a mature adult to be able to look at our foremothers as much <laughs> as our family and say, like, there's some wonderful things to celebrate here, but there's definitely stuff we need to say that that was really bad and we need to change that now. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about the breakthroughs of the past and obviously we have come a long way, but probably still not far enough. What do you think needs to be the next big breakthrough for us in terms of feminism? Yeah, something that I think most people looking at this would agree upon is women's personal bodily autonomy and safety. Mm-hmm. It's something we're having huge conversations as a nation around now. There's been that incredible survey um, that was sort of started by Chantel Contos around um, Sydney private schools, but I think that has spread beyond private schools and beyond Sydney to talk about how many girls and our most privileged girls in a lot of ways still growing up actually having sexual violence normalised. Um, And this is something that you go right back to these very, very earliest women's rights activists. They were fighting as well as for the vote. One of the reasons they wanted the vote for women was so that they could get laws passed that protected women and children and young girls. And I think that's one of the areas in which those women would be really shocked (laughs) to see now how often that experience is still a fairly common one. And it is terrifying to me that we're living in what we deem to be such a modern world, but we're still dealing with these issues and we're not even speaking of countries outside Australia, you know, because I know there are many, many steps to be taken out there as well. Now, I've been doing a bit of reading myself and, you know, I hear that there's a bit of a sort of debate out there about whether men can be feminists. What's your perspective on this? Um, I used to just say yes straight away and easily (laughs) but I I, and I still think in terms of if we're describing a feminist as someone who upholds the rights of everybody to be equal and recognizes that 
that's not true as it is now. And so extra work does need to be done around the area of women's rights in order for that to happen. Then, of course, like I think anybody of any gender um, can and should hold those views. Um, something why I temper my answer a little bit now is because more and more years of working in this area and talking about it, there, there is a tendency for occasionally certain men to use the feminist label as an excuse or a cover <laughs> that if they use that word and announce themselves then there doesn't really need to be much action okay. behind that and and actually not only men <laughs> there yes. are women in the movement too so I, I actually think more and more I think of feminism as something you do as a belief system and a way to act in the world rather than a stable identity that you, you can just claim and think well I'm off the hook for everything mm. and that's really with anything isn't it you can say whatever you like but it's really about the actions behind that isn't it and that's that proves your ideologies and your values and beliefs etc completely yeah now what do you say I find it very frustrating when I hear people say oh I'm not a feminist I don't need feminism and I kind of choke at that and I'm like oh like what can I what, what can you say to these people to try and sort of make them understand that feminism is still a really important part of our society yeah I have those conversations and it it does depend a little bit who I'm talking to Mm. if it is a younger person then I usually prefer to ask questions so instead of telling them they're wrong and they should be I will ask them questions around some of these big issues like the statistics around sexual violence or domestic violence or the extended wage gap that we still have Mm -hmm. and just sort of ask questions around why do you think those things exist you know Um, why is it that a vast proportion of our politicians and business leaders do happen to be men and talk about whether, you know, if you're saying that is just merit, then you are, you know, and just ask some questions and have some conversations around that. Um, With people who do already know all this stuff, but for whatever reason they don't like that word, I, you know, along the same lines of saying it's something you do rather than something you are I think well you know what that's fine don't use the word (laughs) as long as we're all living according to these values and actually living with equality I'm not that fussed on the label yeah but it's interesting that it's almost become a label with you know sometimes negative connotations why is that well and that's it yeah I, I don't know a short answer for that except as what, what seems to happen is that sort of enemies or people who don't like a movement become the ones to try and define what it means. Yep. Um, so that, you know, that can happen. One of the things that I really loved about writing This Is What a Feminist Looks Like and looking at that history was actually really digging into what that actually has meant over time and what those changes would be and really looking at what the conditions of most of our lives would be now <laughs> if it wasn't for these women yeah. and also understanding that they were... They were always treated hostilely. You know, you go back to the 1800s and you will see just horrifically aggressive cartoons Mm. of women who were the suffragists and Mm. and all the the kind of hate speech that we now see online. That was in, like, major newspapers (laughs) against women trying to get the vote. That, That opposition has always been there on some level, and yet over time most people have come on board and most people have actually you know seen that 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 life is better now Mm. for most people not just women yeah no I love that I love that answer but it's interesting that we're still dealing with things these things I find it so frustrating (laughs) look it is like I'm I'm giving all the answers of my highest most great optimistic moment that oh, I, I feel, love but, that. but there's definitely to. days where I'm just like my god enough get it. but I think um speaking about it in an optimistic way I mean that's how you get people on board you know and I like the way you say you don't tell people they're wrong because no one's going to listen to you once you say that but you ask questions and you talk about it optimistically and I think you know they'll come they'll come with you whoever's not with you already 
Uh, yeah, I do think so. I think usually telling someone they're wrong flat out and they're stupid is, is not a great way to win hearts and minds. Probably not the best persuasive technique, I would imagine. Now, I'm interested in writing process. You've written six novels um, and, you know, they've done amazingly well. Stella Prize and the Miles Franklin Award shortlisted. I mean, amazing. Does your writing process change over time or have you stuck to the same writing process or is it different for each book? How does it work for you? It is different for each book, um, but also as an overall, I guess my approach to it has really changed over time. When I f- wrote my first novel, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so that was something I wrote just out of, like in a frenzy almost, without any thought of what would happen to it. Um, and I was working full time, I was writing it mostly at night. It was a very, very messy, uh, chaotic process. I've definitely become more ordered in my habits <laughs> and into my approach. I know what works for me better now. Um, but having said that, every book kind of demands its own process. Like, yeah. it, And I don't know in a first draft how that's going to go. Like, but Both my, my two most recent novels, both of them, I started off thinking they were one kind of book and they needed to be something else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I like how each book needs its own process. I like that. Yeah, I do. Because then they're each, you know, depends on what they need, whether it's research or whether it's a bit more observation or something like that. I like that. Yeah. And different, I mean, with Love Objects, I have three main characters and three point of view characters. But the first draft, there was only one. That's interesting. And so to tell that story, I thought I was telling her story. And this, you know, again, brings us back to this whole idea of families. And what I realised is that it was enough to just tell her fam- mm-hmm. her, her story in isolation mm-hmm. with just her thinking about or talking to family that actually two of those family members needed to be in there themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that process of writing that first uh, draft actually told me what that book needed. Oh, that's interesting. So were you able to then change the perspectives of some characters or you had to write two sort of new perspectives they were, they were characters who existed, yep. but they didn't have, have their, their own, voice. own voice in the yep. book. So, so that was changing some of the scenes. Mm-hmm. So they were from their perspectives, but yep. also a whole bunch of new stuff as well yeah, that needed to be in there. Yeah, no, I like that. And sometimes, unfortunately, you need to kind of write it to then figure out what you need, don't you? Well, you do. And I, I don't even think of that as unfortunate these days. <laughs> I don't, it must be very frustrating because I teach writing too. Mm-hmm. And, and very often my students will ask questions and they know now that my most common answer is it depends. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it really does depend yeah. on the book. and. Absolutely. And, so, and, you know, I, I say too, which also frustrates them, I'm sure, um, the best way to learn how to write a book is to write the book. Yes. Um, which, you know, is exactly what my experience has been, mm. that I think I know this book that I'm going to write and I plan it. I don't plan it that well, but I plan it a bit and I sit down and write it. I think, oh, now I know what I actually need to write. Yeah. And sometimes I've heard from a lot of authors, sometimes you need to write a book or two books or three books before you know how to write a book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so they'll just sit on your desktop and languish there. And that's okay. I think it's part of the process. It really is. There's there's no wasted words yeah, and time with writing, although it can absolutely feel like it sometimes. <laughs> but, but I think you realise that, that it's something that you definitely get more confident with your own voice as yep. you write. And that can be the real difference between a book that's just fine technically mm. and one that sort of breaks through with an audience mm. and and um, you know people talk about that elusive thing of voice yes and I think that is something that can often just be that you've spent enough time sort of just putting the nuts and bolts of how you write a book together and and you kind of let that go I sometimes think of it like when I was learning to drive a car which took me ages and I was terrible (laughs) at it I feel the same way it felt like there were 30 things I had to remember technically about where my hands were and where my feet were and all that I think there's a lot more though I think when they say when your brain is driving there's like hundreds of things that you're yeah and it's, it's only like I could never when I was learning I could never imagine 
imagine enjoying driving, but now that I've been doing it for 25 years or yeah. something and all that stuff is sort of automatic most of the time, yeah. and I, I can actually enjoy that process. Mm. And in a way, writing is, yeah, the, the when you first start, there's so many things, think, oh, characterization and plot and dialogue, and how do I do that? And all these different clunky pieces. And then you reach a level of kind of proficiency or confidence and you can just take some more risks and yeah. relax and enjoy it a little bit. But it's like anything, isn't it? Anything that you start, you can't expect to be expert level the first time you do it. <laughs> no, that's right. But, but I think a lot of people think, oh, I've been writing my whole life. Yeah. You know, because on some level most people have, but then it's, it's a different thing. And mm. I mean, to write a novel... Oh, for me anyway, it takes so long. <laughs> you, you have to really want to stay with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, the last question I ask all the guests who come onto the podcast, Emily, why do you write? Oh, um, I write to understand the world and my place in it. Mm. That's a good answer. And I think we read for the same reason. Absolutely read for the same reason. But I, um, I'm definitely someone who, who when I write... I am really figuring things out. Mm, fantastic. Well, I can't wait to read uh, your book specifically. This is what a feminist looks like. I'm going to go grab a copy now and um, I'm looking really forward to reading it. So thank you so much for your time and um, I hope you enjoy your session and um, this beautiful day at Words on the Waves Writers Festival. Looking out into the ocean doesn't get much better than that. It's, it's amazing. It's so gorgeous. Sorry everyone listening can't be here. <laughs> but you have to take our word for it. It's beautiful. That's it. Thank you. Okay, thanks. thanks.